right, well, let's jump into our series in Mark. This is week 13 in the book of Mark. Uh, If you guys have ever gone to a Starbucks, you will note that people my age and younger like to spend a lot of money on coffee, right? Love to spend a lot of money on coffee, and it is known now, according to some research, that people my age, between the ages of people born between 1980 and in the 2000s, that we spend more on coffee every year than we do in investing in retirement for the future. Isn't that crazy? A quick, I was in line, I didn't tell this first service, but this is just one of my favorite coffee stories. I was in line to get coffee, right, because that's, you can just like typecast me as a guy that likes to get coffee. Uh, I was in, and there was a guy that was kind of a little bit uh, wiser in his years, and I could tell did not like some variance in his coffee. And so he walked up to the counter and he said, I just want a black coffee. <laughs> and she looked at him and said, well, what kind? And he went, I just want a black coffee. And she said, well, you can go down there. There's a Verona blend, and there's a blonde blend. You can just go down there and get yourself. And I watched this guy walk down there with his cup. (laughs) And he did one of these things. I just want, (laughs) he had, I just want coffee. What is this? And I had to walk down there and just kind of like, they're all coffee. Okay, do you just want something that's darker or lighter? And he still was lost, and so I just poured one for him. Uh, (laughs) People my age like coffee. The average American now spends $1,100 a year on coffee. That's $3 a day. That's less than the five bucks at Starbucks, but it's $3 a day. That's crazy. One person my age in Phoenix, Arizona put it this way. He said, I'm not putting my money away because I'm not making money. And so that comes with the shift of being in school longer and having more debt. Uh, debt. We, live, we live in the moment maybe more than any other group of people. And so that concept of thinking about the future or retirement isn't necessarily as big of a deal as it was in the past. But it's not just coffee that we're spending more money on. We're also making decisions, we're making other decisions financially as far as like people from the ages of 18 to 23, only 5% of people that age are investing in anything, but yet 39% would say they're concerned about their financial future. And so it's so easy to take this information and go, that's so silly. Those fools, like don't they understand that they could, they could make that reward so much greater for them than just a cup of coffee if they just invested it in something else down the line? Why do they need to buy the tall, non-fat mocha with a caramel drizzle? Why do they focus on the the grande sugar-free vanilla latte with soy milk? Instead of rolling that into a 401k or trying to get some rewards down the line, they have this short-term view focused on the now, and they miss out on the greater reward down the line if they just sacrificed a little. And maybe you can already tell where we're going today. But I would say that we should be careful with being frustrated and mocking that kind of lifestyle that we just heard because we all share similar behavior. Most of us have, all, most of us have a lost perspective on long-term gain and reward that is produced from denying self, from losing, from giving up now in the kingdom of God. We don't consider the future rewards and the blessing with God that are counted to us by our obedience, our faithfulness, and our love in this moment. Here's something that maybe you don't know about yourself. You, by nature, are wired to seek 
pleasure. You are pleasure seekers. The word is hedonist. You are hedonist by nature, which means that you are going to work to find the most pleasure most often for yourself. And our culture knows that about you, and they have bent to feed that desire in you. Instant gratification, instant relationship, instant reward, instant oatmeal, instant coffee today. They work to feed that desire in you. Your phones are designed in a way to hit the pleasure-seeking part of your brain. Those dings and those buzzes and those noises and those likes, they all prey on your natural instinct to have pleasure created as quick and as abundant as possible. The, the culture has bent towards that idea, designed to hit into that. And so when C.S. Lewis, who's an author, he's a theologian, he's a British guy, he, when he says this, it makes sense to me. I'm, I'm going to fight doing this in a British accent because that would make sense. He says this about us. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We just settle for things in the moment, in the instant, and we don't think about the greater reward that comes through investing our lives to Christ today, now. And so in our text today, we want to take that lens of discussion and focus into what God says to his beloved people, us, his people, that whatever we lose, whatever we lay down, whatever we sacrifice today in this life, it will be repaid in a hundredfold in the life later to come. In this life, maybe, but for sure in the life that is to come after this. That there are rewards given to God's children that we would put off and sacrifice now for later. Incentives that we have to follow Christ that lead to a flourishing in godly lifestyles. Incentive that make the godly lifestyle worthy of all of our effort. And it's important as we enter into a discussion around the ideas of incentives and rewards that yes, we talk about how those works, but it's so important that we have the right motivation in doing those things. And so we're going to jump into our text, Mark 10, verses 28 through 31, and try to find some of that. It says this, Peter, because Peter always is talking for the disciples, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And so this, come immediately, this comes immediately after Jesus walking his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be executed. This verse is found immediately after he meets the, the rich young man that we talked about last week who essentially had this one question. How do I make it 
for sure that I have eternal life. And Jesus looked at him and he said, I want you to sell all that you have and give to the poor. And what we knew and know by studying that word last week is that, that this man's money and possession was created out of a heart problem. Jesus knows this man serves of stuff. He cannot handle that kind of prosperity, cannot handle that kind of wealth, and Jesus begs him, begots him to get rid of those things in his life. He can't handle it because Jesus wants to sit on his throne. He wants to sit on the throne of everyone's life. He wants to be the first love and priority in our lives. And this man walks away sad because he knows he has great possession. And he turns to the disciples, Jesus, and he says, how hard it will be for the rich to enter in the kingdom of God. And this flies in the face of all the disciples had known because in their society, like status and title, wealth and possession, they were clear blessings from God. If you think of Old Testament prophets or Old Testament heroes like Abraham and David and Solomon, they were blessed by God and they had great wealth, status, and blessing. And so this flies in their face, but this is what Jesus does in his kingdom. He turns everything upside down. It is not about status, it's not about wealth, it's not about possession to find blessing from God, but rather it's faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is what brings blessing into our life, what brings hope into our life. Putting Christ as our first priority, as the admiration and desire of our heart, mind, and soul. And so after hearing these tough words from Jesus, the disciples, Peter, who always acts as a spokesman, wanted to make sure that Jesus had noticed the sacrifice that he and the others had made in order to follow Christ, that it would not have gone unnoticed by Jesus. His statement reveals that all of them, in fact, had left everything, home and family and work. They had left it all to follow Jesus. They had done exactly what Jesus had told this rich young man to do. And one might surmise that, hey, well, it's probably harder for a guy with all that possession to leave it than it is for these poor disciples. But it is never easy, poor or rich, to leave family, work, possessions. And that is exactly what the disciples did. We don't know much about the disciples' lives besides a few things like Peter had a wife, Thomas had a twin brother. John and James had a living mother and a father and, and a, a practice of work fishermen. They were fishermen. They had a successful business there. Matthew leaves a successful tax business to follow Christ. They have sacrificed so much. And Peter, being Peter, such a human heart in Peter, he says, what about us? Do you, do you notice, Jesus, what we've done here? Do you notice... What we've sacrificed, do you see my faith doesn't mean anything to you, God? And Jesus essentially says, yes, I do. Yes, I do, and yes, it does matter. And someday you're gonna see that. But that day isn't today. The day isn't today. Because whatever you leave, houses, fathers, sisters, mother, lands, you will be given back to you with interest to a greater degree than what you gave, whether it's here on earth or later in eternal life. And so maybe you're like me when somebody talks about, well, God's gonna give us some good stuff later. You can think, well, what is that? What are we offered here? Is this like plasma screen TVs? Because that stuff's not even in stock anymore. What is that stuff? Well, I would say to you, like, look, that's a, a great desire to have. If I give away a million dollars, do I get a hundred million back? 
If I give somebody a thousand square foot house, do I get a hundred thousand square foot house in heaven someday? Is that what that's saying? But today we want to focus on the basic motivations and right understanding in the area of rewards. And I would say to you that that probably is a later sermon series down the line. In fact, I would even challenge you with going home and studying for yourself the rewards that you will see, receive someday. You can look up things like the five crowns that, that our God talks about as rewards for us in eternity. But today we want to make sure that we have the proper understanding of rewards, how they work, and the motivation that we should have in doing them. Aren't these words hard that Jesus says, leave your brothers and sisters, fathers, mothers, children, lands? Is this what he's asking me to do? Maybe you hear that and you go, okay, wait, I just, this is my first time here. Like, is that what Jesus is asking me to do? That's hard stuff. Jesus is saying that possessions and family are to take a back seat to the gospel and to Christ. Those who leave their families because God asked them to surrender that and move out are not in sin. Does God ask us to lose our families, to leave our families readily today? Not as often. He doesn't often ask us to leave our families and our stuff for evangelical purposes, but he does. And we have to hold all of those things with an open hand to say, God is more important than anything else, and I'm willing to sacrifice if God asks me to. And that's the point for us in this modern-day language. For, for the disciples, what Jesus is saying is that, yes, he indeed understands that they literally left everything to follow him, but the point for us modern believers is that we must be willing to leave everything to follow Christ and gain life. That he would be what we treasure most in this life, that nothing would ever come before him. And that's, if there's one thing that I think that trips up believers most, it's this principle in reality of treasuring. Because we often boil down Christianity and relationship with God to a number of habits and beliefs that we hold and do, that I'm a Christian and I do this, I'm a Christian and I believe this, and, and those things can speak towards uh, belonging and identity, but they don't speak the way that, that Jesus speaks about relationships. They don't speak to relationship with God the way that Paul talks about it. They don't speak about a transformative relationship with God. Your lack of spiritual depth and growth and fulfillment and transformation is not rooted in an obedience problem. It's created from a treasure problem. It's not rooted in an obedience problem. It's created from a treasure problem. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we said your heart is that inner moral, emotional, intellectual self, that inner person. And whatever that person treasures, you will work for. You will work for it. What you treasure will be what informs your works. And I can tell what you treasure by what your works are. You will move to find pleasure in the treasure that you have, whatever you desire the most. So any conversation that revolves around earning rewards or getting incentives for following the Lord has to end and begin with the thought that our greatest reward is Jesus. 
Jesus is your greatest reward. It all has to flow from that. He is what we treasure most. He is what we pursue, what we prioritize most in our life because without Christ, we're doomed. Without him, none of it matters. Relationship with him, what he has done for us is the foundation for all things that are life-giving. There is nothing that we could get, possess, or gain that would be greater than him. The Apostle Paul says this very point in Philippians. It's not in your text. It's not on your screen, but just listen to me. This is what Paul says. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost, lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so we treasure Christ, our Savior, as our greatest reward. And Christ sees us in our recognition of him, in our confession, in our repentance. He sees us and he says, I got this. You can't, I will. I'm going to take all the wrath that God has against you and your sin and your disobedience, and I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to take it. And then I'm going to give you a righteousness that's not your own. It's going to be perfect and holy. I'm going to give that to you. And then I'm going to give the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to you, who's going to begin to drive out your fleshly thoughts and your fleshly actions and drive in as a new creation, new thoughts and new desires that will transform you on the inside out. And so listen, what Jesus demands of us most deeply and most fundamentally are not decisions of the will. Very careful when I talk about this. Meaning that that executing on the things that God says that are good or bad. Those discerning choices we make towards obedience, surrendering our will to God's will. Those are important, but they must first be informed with what God wants most. What God commands and demands fundamentally the most is that we treasure him, that we love him with all that we have, because Jesus is enough. The whole Galatians series, we said Jesus plus nothing is, equals everything. Jesus is enough. And when we are well-pleased in him, when we are satisfied knowing how deeply he served and cared for us, we walk in obedience to him. We walk in obedience to him. In our gratitude for what he has done, we, out of the love of our hearts, understanding how deep he's cared for us, we surrender and walk towards him to become more and more like the Jesus we see in Scripture, the Jesus that compels our hearts to move towards. We love him, what he's done for us. Jesus says this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. What, what comes before keep my commands? If you love me. If you love me, do these things, not out of fear, but out of love, from being well-pleased and satisfied in our Father. And from that, he puts into you new thoughts and new desires. The Holy Spirit leads you towards obedience, towards doing the things that please God most. And listen, it doesn't mean that you always desire to do what God says. Because you treasure him, you know that he wants best for you. And because you love him, you walk in those realities even if you don't feel like it. Sometimes I don't feel like following and obeying God, but I've learned of, there are many things I've learned, but one of the most important things that I've learned in my life is that I can't always trust my emotions. Your emotions are good. 
God gave them those things, but they can and will deceive you. We follow God because we love him, and we know this, that in following, he will create that desire. Sometimes he creates the desire and we move towards it, but sometimes out of obedience for him and love for him, we do it because we know what it's best for. He knows what's best for us. We walk in those reality. And so listen, in our obedience, then, God reveals himself as a rewarder. He reveals himself as a rewarder. By nature, friends, God is a rewarder. He is a rewarder by nature. In, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, number one, and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but when we see him as our greatest reward and we believe and understand that he wants to take care of us, we see him as somebody that wants to reward us as we seek him, as we surrender and obey him with love. We see him as a good father. He's a good father. In Matthew, Jesus writes these words in Matthew 7. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's talking about us, those who are evil, those who are broken outside of a relationship with God. We, without Christ, are enemies of God. And he says, see even how much you love to give good things to your children. I love to give those things more. And I think that's a beautiful picture of an analogy of how God works in the area of rewards. Like, I have two little girls at home. I think God reveals himself in his creation. He operates to some degree how we operate, despite our brokenness, and rewards can be rightly understood in our family relationships. So the, for those who I call my own, my daughters, Camille and Ellie, my two daughters, they don't have a son yet, maybe someday. That's not an announcement. I'm, we're not having <laughs> any babies right now. Maybe, hopefully, someday. But those who I call my own are, are my children. And they call me father. I'm their father. And in creation, God creates us all. And he has a universal love for his creation. But only those in faith in Christ Jesus are his children. He is everybody's creator. He's not everybody's father. For those of us who profess faith in Christ, he is our father. And so in my earthly relationships with my children, because they're my own, I can discipline them. I don't discipline regularly other people's children, okay? I love my little girl's probably a little bit more than I love everybody else's children. I'm not going to say I love your kids. I want that to come off wrong. But I love them. And I want to see them walk well. I want to see them be productive people. I want them to be good citizens. I want to foster their little hearts that they would love and revere Christ. I want them to know him. And so out of love for them, I say, hey, this is what pleases dad. Out of love for them, I say, this is what's best for you. Out of love for them, I discipline them and say, that is not what I have for you. Do I reward them easily when they follow through on what pleases me? 
Parents, you answer me. Yes, absolutely. If you want your kids do something, you are delighted. But if they don't follow instructions, I'm not going to reward that kind of behavior because I want more from them. I want better for them. But here's the best question. Do I ever stop loving them? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In discipline, disobedience, or obedience, my love remains constant for my children. I think this is a great picture of our Father. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, and I think this is important to see. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, right? Jesus is our foundation. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so what this passage is really kind of getting at is that if Christ is our foundation, if he is all that we are, when we, out of pure motives, work for the Lord in obedience to please him and not man, if we build up things in life, that there will be a day in which we will give an account for all the things that we've done on earth. And by testing, those things will either survive or not survive based upon our purity in heart and thought on how we did those things. For some of us, there will be greater structure and greater rewards. But for some of us who have a foundation in Christ, all of it and all the works that we've done in life might be burned away. But yet because our foundation and our hope and our love is in Christ, our salvation will not be in jeopardy. But doesn't that want you to, to make you build something? I, I want to build something when I hear about that. And so I, I want you to consider this. As a son or a daughter, and I, I just want to apologize. I know that there are realities in here where you did not have the type of father that I know that God would want you to have known, the type of father that we see in Christ. But could you imagine a picture with me for a moment, a father who completely loves you and delights in you, who cares for you and serves you? Why would you not want to serve him? Why would you not want to please him, to walk towards him. Why? Because you trust him. And why do you trust him? Because you believe he knows what's best for him, you. My little girls, all they can think about next is play. That's everything to them. They don't have the years in the mind that I can see the bigger picture in their life. I know, I know what's out there. I know what I, what I sense the Lord wants them to be, and I'm going to push him towards those things. And the same is true to your father. You think you know the bigger picture? You don't know the bigger picture. And God is moving you because he has that knowledge towards something more than you can imagine. And so because we trust him, we obey him. We obey him. And listen, you are designed in a way that incentive and reward speaks as motivation. You are just wired in that way. And look, as a good dad, I delight in giving incentive to my girls. 
They're 4-1. They're trying as hard as they can. But hey, sweetie, tonight let's watch a movie together. I want you to do this. We're just wired in this way that we seek incentive and reward. Sometimes we don't understand God's okay with that. Like in your relationship with him, he has set incentives for you to have a godly life. That he's going to give to you more than what you've given. And if you treasure Christ, it's okay to say, you know what? I want to build in this life. I want to give in this life because I want a richer reward in heaven. It's okay to do that if you treasure Christ. He's designed you in a way because, listen, he would have been just to not give us reward. Absolutely just not to give us reward. He would have been just to withhold. But he delights, he chooses to give us good things. He gives us good things. So, we honor him. And here's the great thing. As we seek God, and as we give, as we treasure him, God begins to gladden our hearts with the things that we already have. As we lower ourselves, God elevates things in our life that create a peace and contentment that is far surpassing anything this world knows. John Calvin writes it this way. It's in your bulletin. He says that God gladdens his people so that the small portion of good which they enjoy is more highly valued by them and far sweeter than if out of Christ they had enjoyed an abundance of good things. Isn't that beautiful? That as we are well-pleased and satisfied and treasure the Lord, and as we sacrifice and deny, we become exceedingly happier in that. Exceedingly more joyful in that than if we would have all the possessions and the wealth of the world. Why? Because we got Jesus. <laughs> we got Jesus. And he's the greatest reward. Because the rewarder is always better than the reward. The rewarder is always better than the reward. And we have, as our Father, the creator of the cosmos, whose supply of rewards is inexhaustible. And he gives to us out of delight of his heart. And so understand, friends, when you choose to deny and lose and lay up and surrender in this life, you have more waiting for you than what you gave. But many who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. Everything that we give up here will be rewarded in Christ someday. Not just pound for pound, but with interest, more than we gave. That is the incentive that we have to live godly lives that please the Father. And so maybe while we're in this, you have the same question that I have when I hear about this hardship and the cost. These last five weeks in Mark have just been the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. And, and maybe in your heart, you get the question that, that Peter has. Well, what about me? Do you notice me? And the, the root of that question is, is all that I'm doing good enough? Maybe you feel that tension when you hear like, leaving your mothers and your fathers, 
sisters and brothers, like, that's a lot, Jesus. Am I doing okay? Because we're in a culture, right, that has abundance in riches, abundance in comforts, abundance in pleasures. We get what we want. And maybe we hear this and we're concerned of, am I denying enough? Am I surrendering enough? What does that mean for me, Lord? Do, do I need to just, Lord, do I need to suffer more? Do I need to just give all of this away and live on the street? Do I just, what do I need to do? I, I want to search after you. I want to please you, Lord. Am I doing enough? Maybe you're feel fearful that you're not. And so I just want to speak to you today about the paradox and the tension that we face as Christians in life. We have this tension in our lives between being a saint in the eyes of God and a sinner. There's a tension that exists inside of us in those two identities. There's a tension that exists in your life because you are promised, but you're persecuted in this world. There's a tension that rests inside of your life because you're blessed, but yet you struggle. And I would say to you, if you feel the tension in those identities, know this, that that is the Holy Spirit of God that is pushing into your life. And he is not asking you, do not reject that as condemnation. Don't lean away from that. The Lord delights in you sitting in that tension and seeking him, finding out what he has asked you to do. There is a paradox to this thing that is evidence of the high surgeon of heaven, God himself working in your life. Don't be afraid of that. Yes, riches corrupt, and we have more than we need. But Jesus is not asking you to go without just to go without. He's not asking you to sacrifice just to sacrifice. Those things in themselves are not what he's asking us to do. He asks us to lay those things down for love, to do good for his name. In, in Corinthians, it says, and if I have prof prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so much as I can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And so sometimes we can hear these things and think radically that Jesus wants to, me to move this. Maybe he does. But if you have not love in your cause, then you are nothing. Being rooted, treasuring God is our first step. Doing good, not going without, is the motivator. Love people, not money. Love God, not money. Love God, not things. Learn the profound contentment that Paul writes about over and over in his epistles that as Jesus as a reward, it creates an abundance in our life where you can give away because you have a greater possession in your life. You have a Savior who's done it all for you. And in all things that you do, friends, do it as if you were doing it for the Lord. Work in all things for the Lord. Make that the meditation of your heart, the prayer of your mind and your soul, that you would work in all things for the glory of God. That would be your perspective. It will lead you to right spots. In Colossians 3, 
It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for man. Don't work for man, work for the Lord. If you want to rack up rewards in heaven, if you want to have eternal blessing in the way that you've sacrificed today, work for the Lord, not for men. So that even means, like, I'm doing these dishes today, and I'm doing it for the Lord, not for my wife. I'm making this sales call today, and I'm going to do it for the Lord for the joy of the reward that I have in the Lord. I'm going to work today by folding these towels for the joy of the Lord. I'm going to love my kids, and I'm going to work for the joy of the Lord. I'm going to forgive today for the joy of the Lord. Let that be the desire of your hearts. And God proves to be faithful as a giver, a rewarder. And what we give here, we will get far more later. And so as we take a moment here to end our time with worship, I ask you to reflect on that. To sit in the tension of the paradox of a Christian life and seek the Spirit and ask Him, what about me, God? Where do you want me to move? What do I need to, to do here? I want to please you, Father. I want to treasure you first and I want to walk in obedience. Don't be afraid of that tension. Sit in Him. And let's just praise Him today as our greatest reward on this earth.